For as long as we've debated philosophical ideas and had the concept of logic, we've also had logical fallacies. Texts on logical fallacies predate Christ, and our first thoughts have been discussed by Aristotle, who pondered these fallacies in his Lectures on Logic. It's in Aristotle's Organon where he first identified 13 fallacies of reason. Perhaps the most well-known would be his questionable cause fallacy, or put another way, correlation doesn't equal causation. Recognising logical fallacies is an important skill in any critical thinker, and recognising these fallacies in our clinical decisions is equally as important as having the underpinning knowledge to make them. This month, as part of our Preparing to Practice section of podcasts, we're discussing fallacies in clinical reasoning. We're going to discuss some of the most common ones, times we've identified it in our own practice, and what, if anything, we can do to help overcome them and improve our decision making. So let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh, I'm a trainee specialist paramedic in critical care. My name's Simon, I'm a trainee advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. And my name's Alex and I am a lead paramedic and practice placement educator. So this is General Broadcast. These are short summaries of topics designed to refresh memories and provide links to other resources for further learning. We hope this podcast will be a useful directory for integrating care-based practice examples with the accompanying theory. Every week to go along with this podcast is a article which you can find on generalbroadcast.org.uk, as well as our previous archive of podcasts. But as we said in the intro this week, we're talking about logical fallacies. So let's start with a definition then. So logical fallacies, sometimes called clinical fallacies, or sometimes referred to as cognitive biases, these are all errors, uh, common errors that occur in our thought processes and our thinking, and they undermine the logic of our argument or undermine the logic behind our clinical decisions. They are becoming increasingly recognised as one of the most common forms of clinical error and can affect all of us, no matter how experienced we are as clinicians or how much acumen and knowledge we possess. It's therefore essential that we try and understand how these fallacies cause bias in our clinical decision making. And once we're aware, we can then try to avoid falling into these traps. Exactly. We said we're going to try and come up with some of the ways that we can overcome these biases. But I think that the, the, the biggest thing and the, the first step in that is recognising them and recognising not only when we're demonstrating them, but when we there's a risk that we'll demonstrate them. And, and I think that's the, the biggest step to help overcome them and to help improve our thinking and decisions. So that's what we're hoping to achieve with this podcast. We're going to discuss some cognitive biases or logical fallacies that either we've demonstrated on our practice or we think particularly prominent or relevant to pre-hospital paramedic practice. And then we're going to try and discuss some ideas that may help to overcome some of these logical fallacies. I think it's really important as reflective and responsible practitioners that we reflect on our own error and look at times we've made these mistakes in our own practice and that's what we're going to be doing today sharing some examples from our practice and obviously we'll be anonymizing or changing certain details to ensure the confidentiality and anonymity is protected so i don't know about you guys i've certainly got plenty of mistakes that i can be talking about so let's get started uh simon do you want to give us the first one yeah so the first one i'm going to talk about is uh, confirmation bias Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favour and recall information that confirms or supports one's prior personal beliefs or values. So in the clinical setting, most of the time this happens when we take a history. So we go in, we form an opinion about what we think is wrong with the patient 
but then we only listen to the information that supports that opinion and that can lead to diagnostic error. It goes hand in hand with cherry picking, which is the then opposite, where we disregard any information that doesn't fit the pattern that we want it to fit. So the good example of this would be a young patient with chest pain who might have a cough but has a a tight chest pain that feels like a band. Yes, the chest pain could be related to a chest infection, but they could also be having an MI and omitting any symptoms that might make you think MI because you think the patient's young and they're more likely to have a chest infection would be an example of a confirmation bias. You are missing out the information that leads you away from your answer just to make it fit what you think or or the opinion you've already formed. Yeah, and following on from that, Simon, there's another type of bias, which I think is is quite similar. It's something called anchoring bias. And now anchoring bias is when you are given a piece of information and you anchor to that information to the exclusion of other information. So an example of that sort of in in real life practice would be that I I had a student once who... um, he would receive information on the CAD or the MDT, whatever, whatever you like to call it, about a job. And he would read that and then go into the job working on the assumption that the information, the di- the uh, if you like, the diagnosis that we were given was correct. So if it said it was a chest infection, he would go in specifically looking for a chest infection and forgetting to look for other relevant presentations like PE, cardiac chest pain, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think one of the the biggest examples that this that across the ambulance service where this happens is, and I don't know if you guys would agree with me, is one 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 calls. I think a lot of people see one 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 come up on their screen and immediately think this is Ooh. not going to be anything serious. And I really think that's a dangerous attitude that, that yeah. some people have formed. Uh, yeah, and I think it is really tricky to overcome. And and Alex, I certainly, I'm sure I've been guilty of it since qualifying. But certainly, when I was a, a student, I I was definitely guilty of of doing uh, the same thing that you describe your student doing there. Uh, one of the ways that my mentor helped me overcome it was he wouldn't let me look at the MDT before going into jobs. Mm. He would just shout through a, a rough detail of of what the job was and maybe the presenting complaint or whether or not to expect this patient is going to be very unwell or, or or whatever. But as a result of that, I would go into that call and ask far more open questions. And I think that's the way to help overcome this. Uh, again, if, if it's a, a one-on-one job, and I don't want to sound or, or suggest that I haven't made the same decisions down the MDT at four in the morning when it's your fifth cough from 111 or your fifth generally unwell patient from 111 yeah I, th- I think um, I think we're all guilty of that to some extent aren't we and actually not just 111 jobs I've I've had a situation where uh, we were given a job for a teenager who was uh, this is this is on sort of a bright sunny day very hot sort of Easter weekend sort of thing and we were passed down this job for this teenager who was unconscious in a field and on the way to the job we were sort of thinking oh goodness me this is going to be someone who's had far too much to drink and you know why on earth are we going to this when we got there? It turns out that this actually was a, a chap having multiple seizures, which turned out to be due to uh, pulmonary hypertension. And so quite a significant condition yeah. and quite a significant difference to uh, what we had sort of assumed. And I think the key thing here in terms of overcoming that is to be aware that the information that you have is not necessarily correct. And I think we're all guilty of sort of choosing 
to a certain extent how accurate the categorization of the call is uh, and I think that can also be a, a very dangerous thing to do. I think sometimes we just have to bite our lip and respond based on the information that we have available and if it turns out to be inaccurate then that that's the case. Because it only takes one of them where you've walked in not treating it with perhaps the respect that, that you should have because you've made a prejudgment of, of where the jobs come from or you've made a prejudgment of the, uh, the the call category but it only takes one job that actually it was triaged correctly and, and you're in the wrong to make you feel absolutely awful. Yeah and that actually leads us very nicely Josh on to another type of bias that I think you were going to talk about which is the availability heuristic or single case bias. Uh, yeah, so this is significant case bias, sometimes called uh, the availability heuristic. This occurs when you have heard about a job or perhaps been involved in a particularly prominent or rare case that maybe caught you off guard or maybe it's gone a bit wrong for a colleague. Now they've landed themselves in a bit of hot water because of because they've been sort of nipped in the backside by this this rare presentation. And now because this case is so ingrained in your mind, you see it everywhere and it might become a regular differential diagnosis that, that pops into your mind and, and that you keep coming to. And despite it being incredibly rare and not logical and not the most statistically likely option from the inter- information you've got, you, you just can't get this diagnosis out of your mind. And so you keep making decisions based on what if it's this? What if it's that? So to put it into old ambulance uh, terminology, that would be uh, hearing who's hooves and thinking of zebras. Yeah, and and a, a classic example is that paramedic in the crew room who has been caught out by the 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 axis or peg fracture from a really low speed rear end shunt, and so they feel really uncomfortable using the Canadian C-spine rules or something to, to rule out significant neck fractures in these patients because they have seen the, whatever it is, the 0.01% that, that isn't picked up by those clinical rules? I think we need to be really careful here about crew room attitude as well. There is a lot of myth within the ambulance service and a lot of rumour and talk that that does make people slowly influenced towards defensive practice and I think we need to remember that these cases do happen there are always rarities in medicine but what we need to do is make sure that our practice is evidence-based that it was a reasonable decision with the information we had at the time and no one can ask any more of you than that mistakes are always made in medicine things are always missed in medicine and unfortunately as healthcare professionals who are accountable and responsible for their practice we need to accept that and the only thing we need to take away is the correct amount of learning now that might be that everything you did was perfectly acceptable and everything you looked into was fine for that patient and something just happened to be missed that is fine but we need to remember that not every single thing that ever goes wrong could have been prevented an example i have is a a uti that i saw and at the time I saw them, they were well, they were not confused, and they were given a course of oral antibiotics by me. They were seen the next day by a crew, and the patient had subsequently become septic and had been taken to hospital. Now, that is a, a, a possible expected outcome of a deterioration in an infection, but 
that doesn't mean that the decision that was made the day before that this was at the time a simple UTI with no sepsis markers was wrong. People can deteriorate in medicine, which is why we safety net. So we shouldn't base every decision we make on the potential outcome of what could happen. We should base it upon this is the likely course. I know that it could get better, it could get worse. And if it gets worse, safety netting that patient and making sure that you cover that eventuality, but you don't have to be reactive to that eventuality. And actually that being said, Simon, as well, it does it does also go the other way in that you don't have to have a single case and assume everything you know, is the, the sort of the worst case scenario. Actually, it can work the other way around as well. And you were talking about crew room attitudes. Sometimes the reason that we think of zebras is because zebras do exist in medicine. And I think it's also very dangerous to be dismissive of things that you may find, findings that you may have and, and suspicions that you may have of unusual cases just because 99% of the time it turns out not to be. I think it's important to to evaluate all the information that you have and come up with a leading suspicion or, or working diagnosis. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there. Just keep an open mind and work every patient up as an individual case on its own merit. And, and I think you'll be fine. This ties in quite nicely with our next logical fallacy, which is base rate neglect. And the best example of this is is the difference in the way that paramedics work up a patient and GPs work up a patient. So base rate neglect occurs because we're taught to treat for the worst first. And if we can't exclude it, well, we treat that until we're proven otherwise. And the, the issue with this is it doesn't take into account the prevalence of that disease to begin with. So the 999 triage system assumes that every difficulty in breathing is a PE until proven otherwise and that's why people with a cough from 111 get an ambulance it assumes that every chest pain is a stonking occlusive myocardial infarction until proven otherwise and that's why the costochondritis from someone who's had a cold for a week or the weightlifter that's just torn their pectoral muscle gets an ambulance on a category two response call and this is reflective in the way that we work up patients. We are constantly taught from university about all of these things that kill people very quickly. And so when we go to work these patients up, there will be a percentage of them who scream something else. They might scream mild chest infection or anxiety or something like that. But we have PE in the back of our minds, not taking into account the statistical likelihood that that patient will have this disease. And that can that can negatively affect our decision making and, and, and may result in them going to hospital. I, th uh, I think, Josh, it's, it's important to point out at this point that we're not bashing the triage system per se, although it may to some degree sound like that. I think, you know, specifically when we're talking about telephone triage, there are a lot of other difficulties in terms of the difficulties of telephone versus face to face. So although we are discussing that as an example, don't take that to mean that the triage system is is wrong. No, no, absolutely not. And I think it, I think a lot of these are just nature of the beast, aren't they? The 999 system pretty much has to be like that. And it's only natural that people who've gone to four muscular chest pains or coughs and colds in a row are going to be predisposed to seeing that in the next one that they go to. These are just things that occur. And I think 
what we're talking about is we're not criticising these things. We're just saying that we need to be aware of it to to help overcome it. Absolutely. And being someone who has done telephone triage in my career in the past, it is exceptionally difficult. And I think yeah, you've worked for one one one. I have, you? I have, yeah, uh, for a short period. For your sins. Um, and and I. And <laughs> Uh, and I, I think it's always good. I would highly recommend any student paramedics or, or paramedics to, to to go to the control room to speak to the dispatchers to um, go and do a couple of days in the in the hub. See how challenging telephone triage is. I've also always maintained that urgent and emergency care is a spectrum. I get quite upset by when a lot of people say we shouldn't be doing all this urgent care stuff. And I, I always use the counter argument, which I firmly believe in. Okay, well. The child with a rash and a fever, how do you know whether it's a mild viral exanthem or whether it's meningitis until you see them, until you've taken a history, until you've done an examination, until you've seen whether that child is unwell, whether their OBS are in normal range, how yeah. they've responded to treatment. And, and that's just one case. But you, you, you cannot tell. It is urgent and emergency care is a spectrum and all patients can fluctuate along that on a day to day basis. And therefore... Unfortunately, it is a package that we we have to go to to all of it. Yeah, I know. I, I agree. Someone I think gotten slightly off topic, Josh, you were talking about um, base rate bias and how uh, so we, we are trained to sort of work from the worst case scenario down. But I, I, I believe you're going to talk about how people like GPs and other other areas of care work in a different way to us that you've basically you, you've you've said it there, whereas GPs will look at that same cough or difficulty in breathing and think about the, the primary care things and so might discharge them with some antibiotics and, and watch and wait and see how they go these are just two fundamental differences in the way that we're taught and the way that we the way that we think as clinicians and also the frequency of things that we're seeing we obviously will see an awful lot more omis and pe's um, than a gp will and they will obviously hopefully they will see a lot more uh, mild chest infections and, and and things like that than we will and so it's just a fundamental difference in the way that we're taught and the, and the things that we're seeing. And I'm not criticising that. And I definitely am not advocating that we don't consider PE next time we go to see that patient with difficulty in breathing. But I think we just need to be aware of this inherent bias in, in the way that we're taught and, and the way that we think that we will favour things that are perhaps not as statistically likely and we need to factor that into our thought processes and we need to factor that into the decisions that we come to yeah i think uh, i think a good way of uh, of thinking of it another name perhaps to call it zero risk bias because we we love certainty we love the certainty that abdominal pain any abdominal pain that we go to is uh, an acute abdomen and therefore needs to go to hospital because we feel sort of feel instinctively and, and for some and to some degree have been taught that eliminating risk means that there's no chance of harm and and we know logically that that, that just isn't true taking every patient to hospital that presents with abdominal pain or every patient that presents with with chest pain regardless of of any findings doesn't reduce harm what it does is uh, it has a tendency to overburden the hospitals and actually is exposing people to pathogens in hospital and also potentially exposing them to to dangers environmental dangers such as unnecessary blue light drives so the idea the idea of zero risk bias this this base rate confirmation that that we work from the highest down i think like you said josh it's not necessarily a bad thing it's just something to be aware of it goes both ways something which can 
cloud our thinking sometimes. So I didn't really bring this uh, this up with you guys when we were sort of discussing this, but I have got a couple of uh, a couple of other little biases Ooh, which kind of play off each other as well. Um, just to discuss, just yeah, a little bit of improv. So this is two things that are kind of they're the opposite of each other. One is called conservatism bias. The other is regency bias. And this comes down really. I think the best evidence, the best example of this is when looking at evidence. Now, conservatism bias is the favouring of old evidence over new evidence because it's what Sally the technician showed you or taught you in the garage 20 years ago. Uh, Regency bias is the exact opposite of this. So that's weighing, uh, overweighing new evidence against old evidence. And I think to a certain degree, all academia is guilty of that. Just because something is more than three years old doesn't necessarily mean that it is not the, the prime example the prime work in evidence so that's just another example of of two biases and i think it's important to discuss because as we've said all the way through this the fact that we're discussing a bias doesn't necessarily mean that it's 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 a it's a bad thing it is a logical fallacy but they do go both ways you're always under the influence of one or the other if you're if you're not leaning towards conservatism bias at one point you're probably leaning towards regency bias so it's very that's that's why certainly as students it's very important that everyone is taught how to evaluate evidence and how to look at an evidence base rather than just looking at one or two pieces of evidence and saying well this is the newest or this is the most famous i've heard of this one and therefore that's probably correct i'd go so far as to say alex it's like a a big form of anchoring bias in the fact that you are sticking to an opinion based upon either old evidence or minimal new evidence without actually considering things properly. Yeah, I think you're right, Simon. I think um, all of these things kind of tie into each other. We're trying to put sort of specific names on on cognitive processes, which which aren't necessarily easy to define. And perhaps we should have uh, organised a psychologist or a psychiatrist to uh, come and speak to us as well. They wouldn't let you leave, mate. You'd be committed the moment they speak to you. No, absolutely. They've been they've been trying to get a psychiatrist to see me for some time. To be honest, I think that's probably no one. No one's brave enough to take on that challenge, are they? Okay, so let's move on to diagnostic momentum. And this is a type of cognitive bias that can occur when we've got to the stage in a consultation, and we may have taken a, a good portion of the history, and we're just starting to form our impressions, or we may have formed our impression of what's going on with this case and at this stage it can be really difficult to stop the momentum that originates from forming that impression it can be really difficult to change pathways and it can be really difficult to alter or or go back on on, on what you think is going on with this patient and i've got a particularly memorable incidence of this in my practice so this was a case that i went to who had called 111 and uh, had received a CAT2 ambulance because they were feeling generally unwell. And without going too much into detail in this case, because obviously I want to bear in mind patient confidentiality, this was a a case where the patient had had an inoculation a couple of days beforehand. They'd had an occupational health appointment. It had come back as saying that they didn't have the required immunity for, uh, for certain illnesses and so they'd had a a top-up inoculation as a result of that and they were now starting to feel generally virally unwell which can happen as a result of of having a a booster jab I'm sure we've all had it shortly after receiving the flu jab that was the kind of impression I was getting from this patient they were generally unwell their observations were quite unremarkable they were a little bit tachycardic they were a little bit pyrexic 
but but otherwise they they were presenting quite well. So I was starting to form the impression with this patient that it was it was the inoculation and thinking back to this case that was a piece of information that came down on the MDT and I probably anchored to that quite early on and in my history take there's there's potential that I had some confirmation bias in that history take because that that piece of information that they'd had this inoculation had been handed down and sent down with, with the call details so I went into that consultation and I opened that history take with that information in my mind it's looking back on it now that may have influenced and affected the way that I took that history and the, the, the bits of information that I, that I garnered from that history. And it was just as we were starting to conclude, I'd be quite frankly about what I thought was going on. Uh, and they agreed, they thought it was potentially the out the, the result of, of this inoculation, just some post-viral sort of feeling unwell as a result of that. And ordinarily this would self-resolve. Uh, but it was at this point that the patient brought up that they had developed sort of a, a, an odd looking rash on their legs so I examined it because they were just giving me this piece of information so I had a look at the rash and it, it wasn't one I particularly recognized it didn't look like a classic purpuric or petechial rash that we would associate as a, as a red flag but but it, it wasn't you know it wasn't anything I recognized it actually looked like someone had got blue ink I remember it being very blue and it looked almost like a finger fingerprint sized bruises uh, maybe a collection of about six or seven of these fingerprint sized very blue bruises uh, on the inside of the patient's legs they were, they were painless and and uh, and it was at this point that uh, whilst I was looking up interactions with this particular vaccination that the patient had had I did note that in very rare cases you can develop a rash associated with this vaccine but I didn't really know how rare that was I didn't know what the rash looked like whether this was it uh, or what what the implications were from that rash so at that point I decided to seek a bit bit of advice by calling an out of hours GP and decided to do a bit of shared decision making because because that piece of information didn't fit in with the initial impression that I'd formed the wait time for a GP was was quite significant uh, and I decided to I, I went outside of the house waiting in the the ambulance for this call back on my mobile so I could get signal and uh, my ECA colleague was staying inside with the patient uh, my ECA came out probably about 20-30 minutes waiting for this call back and said just so you know the patient's gone for a lie down there they were starting to feel a little bit sensitive to the light so they wanted to go and lie in a dark room and as I'm sure many people listening, that pricked my ears up. So I went in, reassessed the patient. And they were just a little bit photosensitive, but, but they were still quite well. Uh, and so I thought, well, I've come this far. I'll carry on waiting for the GP callback. It will happen anytime soon. And we were waiting a little bit longer. And probably about 20, 30 minutes later, my, my ECA colleague came out again and said, just so you know, the patient's starting to get a little bit of neck discomfort now and has developed a, a headache. So I went back in reassessed the patient they're still presenting quite well observations remained unchanged and although they said they had a little bit of neck discomfort there wasn't the classic neutral rigidity or Koenig's or Brzezinski sign that you might otherwise look for around about that time the GP called back discussed the case with them and then explained you know there's this patient who's had this jab a couple of couple of days ago they're now virally unwell but just so you know whilst we've been waiting for the call back they're a little bit photosensitive uh, and they've got a little bit of neck discomfort but I'm not convinced I would call it neutral rigidity, but but it does hurt for them to flex their neck. And they've got a bit of a headache, which is new as well. And as all of this stuff was leaving my mouth, I was thinking, 
oh my god why am i trying to leave this patient at home because saying this out loud now to this gp i, I can't exclude meningitis really and the gp said exactly the same thing you know with with those symptoms you've definitely got to consider meningitis and you've definitely got to consider is there some kind of intracerebral infection here and so you should probably take them into hospital to to exclude that and I was like yeah I absolutely agree now that these symptoms have presented themselves that's the picture that I should have got and and I think that's just an example it's something that I've reflected on quite heavily because getting all of those symptoms together this this is a textbook potential intracerebral infection textbook sort of meningeal presentation but i think this is an example of diagnostic momentum as well as a number of other cognitive biases in 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 my uh, in my workup and and an example of of how tricky it can be to go away from that initial impression when you've got this workup and this condition already formed in your head and this new information is coming to light and this new information is coming out of the woodwork you have to be aware of 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 the risk of stagnating and sticking to that initial point and you have to be aware of how difficult it is to change the direction that you're going and fortunately i had that check step and as i was reading that back the gp was starting to dawn on me so this is a, another example of how we can perhaps overcome it by uh, sharing decision making and discussing things openly with with our colleagues because i could tell that my uca was recognizing these red flags and we just need to you know ensure that that our colleagues are, are empowered to to flag that up and and tap us on the shoulder and say um are you sure about this decision because so, sometimes we need somebody else external to point things out to us and sometimes we need people to direct our thought patterns or help us get out of of those cyclical or very linear mindsets of well this is my initial impression uh, and and I'm sticking to that so i think just to summarize that Josh what you're saying is that once your your kind of treatment plan your your diagnostic pathway once that had kind of uh been initiated it was very difficult for you to then say hang on a minute that's um that's not necessarily correct and, and kind of go another way and I think I think it's it's actually another way of looking at that. It's it's not it's not that difficult to, in some respects, to turn around and say, well, let's take that person to hospital. But actually, once you've made that decision, it can actually be quite difficult sometimes the other way around to to say, well, I think we need to go to hospital, and then more information comes to light, and then it's it, it can be quite difficult to turn around and say this is this changes things, and I think actually we can stay here quite safely. Yeah, and and ultimately holding your hands up and say, I've I've, I've got it a bit wrong here it doesn't matter how experienced we get, this can happen to any of us. Um, and my consultant pulled me aside um, when I was uh, discussing a patient with them probably a couple of months ago, and I'd done exactly the same thing. A patient who really wanted to go home, but his family really wanted to keep him in hospital. And I just got completely fixated on getting him home because that's what he wanted. And actually, when you actually look at the facts, look at the bloods, look at the results of the tests we have and listen to the history and all the symptoms that were changing, he he really needed to be in hospital. And I, my job should have been to explain better to him that he needed to be in rather than to follow his wishes and get him home. And I think following patients' wishes is really important, but I do think we've, it's our responsibility to explain risk to patients and to give them 
educated and, 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 and advice on options. And I think, you know, getting locked into one process, which is exactly what happened, it can be can be quite dangerous. And, and I don't think it, it's anything to do with experience. I think it can happen to any of us. So we've really got to be aware of it in our practice. So, Josh, what was the what was the outcome of your case? About a week later, we got a box of chocolates and a card left on our ambulance station and uh, it was from this patient and they'd had a couple of days in hospital and they were discharged not with meningitis but with a very strange reaction to the vaccine and so my initial thought process was potentially along the right lines but but I'm not being swayed by that I was still wrong and I was wrong to in my mind exclude a lot of that information on the scene and meningitis was 100% the right thing to consider on scene and the in-hospital clinicians are coming to that decision after multiple tests multiple bloods multiple discussions between themselves and you know following a lumbar puncture to exclude that yeah that's a really good point shall we move on to one that particularly bothers me so uh, people listening probably won't know this but my background originally before i uh, trained as a paramedic my background was in the prison service And obviously in the prison service, I worked uh, a lot with people who obviously committed crime and were dependent on alcohol and drugs and and had other sort of issues. And one thing that that has shaped my thinking around is is something that we call ascertainment bias. And I think a really good example of ascertainment bias is to assume that someone who is of no fixed abode is alcohol dependent or a drug user just based on your prior experience. Yeah, I've got a couple of really good examples of this. Um, one, actually, I seem to remember involves you, Josh, many years ago when you were my student. Um, I believe we... Oh, God, come on. We've just discussed one of my big mistakes. Let's not do another one. No, no. It was it was my mistake, actually. I, I seem to remember us being called to a frequent caller who is known to falsify symptoms and to not be completely honest with crews. It's quite a challenging patient, but a high-risk patient nonetheless. And I seem to remember telling you, I'll oh, just, you know, do a quick set of obs, just take a certain amount of what they say with a pinch of salt, and then we'll just keep her at home, reassure her, refer her back to the GP, which is part of her care plan. She was really poorly. And I believe I was telling you, obviously, just to do the minimal workup and not over-medicalise the patient and follow the the agreed care plan, which was to manage via primary care. And you were actually turned around to me and said, Simon, the, this lady's got a temperature of 40 plus degrees. She's tachycardic and hypertensive and actually turned out she had sepsis. So it just goes to show how quick you can make a judgment upon someone based upon a stereotypical thing. And I think it's normal that we, we do stereotype in our practice, but we just have to be really, really aware of it and make sure that we, we try wherever possible to not let it influence our decision making in our practice, because that on my behalf was, was 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 not good to you know to be telling you that that sort of advice um i don't know if you can remember that case yeah i i can definitely remember that it's the day i lost an awful lot of respect for you <laughs> um, um, and, and actually on, on on the back of that simon i think i'd like to actually instill a little bit of bias in in uh, any listeners i've always worked on the basis that frequent callers are um, sometimes obviously challenging and I think if if any patient is going to uh, going to take you down it's going to be a frequent caller simply because you're so likely to assume that the way they're presenting today is the way that they have always presented in the past and so if you're ever going to get caught out by someone it is going to be 
a frequent caller. So just be very aware of ascertainment bias, anchoring bias, all of the things that we're talking about, particularly when dealing with um, with people that you that you frequently uh, interact with. We, you know, we need to remember that these are high risk patients and they do have a lot of health problems and they need to be treated right. I do stand by the fact that we shouldn't over medicalize things if people have a, a, a care plan, but we do need to make sure that we are assessing them thoroughly and without bias as much as, 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 as is possible. So moving on nicely then to our next fallacy, which is framing effect. Josh, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So this is how your decisions are affected by the way that you frame the question. That seems really silly, uh, but I think it does make a, a big difference to the decisions that we might come to, especially if we're really on the fence. So the example that's given in a lot of the medical texts with this is when you're deciding whether or not to order a CT scan, your decision on whether or not or not to do that will be affected by whether or not you ask yourself, okay, there is a one in a hundred chance of this patient having condition X, which is why I want the CT scan, or whether or not you say there's a 99% or a 99 out of a hundred chance that the patient's fine, that they don't statistically, that they don't have this condition. And I think for us pre-hospitally, whether or not we decide to take somebody to hospital, especially if they're really on the fence, could be framed by whether or not we're on a car or whether or not we're on a DCA. You know, three in the morning, you're there on an RRV, you know it's going to be a two or three hour wait for a P2 backup. Whether or not this patient needs to go to hospital could potentially be affected by whether you're there on a car or whether you're there on a DCA or because of how easy it is to take that patient to hospital. So certainly when I'm on a car and I'm I'm in that that fence sitting position deciding whether or not we need to go in, I ask myself, well, if, if this was really easy for myself, if, if I was on a DCA and our route was just outside, would I still take them in? And sometimes that has actually changed my decision. So, Josh, another way of sort of stating the framing effect, I suppose, could be it's the equivalent of the uh, is the dress black or blue? It, it sort of depends on what you see first. It's black. Everyone else is wrong. <laughs> Well, I think we could do a whole podcast just about that. So shall we move on to our final type of bias then? Uh, and that is blind spot bias. Yes. <laughs> sorry, I didn't realise I didn't realise you wanted me to sorry, I didn't I didn't realise <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing, just an intro or the whole thing. Okay, fine. So shall we move on to our final bias then, which is blind spot bias. Now, blind spot bias essentially is not being aware of your own blind spots. And this is particularly relevant when you have recently qualified. But that being said, it's also something that can happen to you throughout your whole career, throughout your whole life. So it's not something that is isolated to the newly qualified staff. Um, it's just particularly prevalent. Now, to put it another way, you're not aware of the things that you don't know. So if there's a gap in your knowledge, you're not going to be aware of that. And that can sometimes cause an issue. So earlier on, we were talking about things like anchoring bias and focusing on information which you've been given and excluding other things. Now, it's very difficult to understand how relevant information is if you have big gaps in your knowledge. And I think that's essentially what we're what we're getting at. 
it's really tricky, isn't it? And this is this is really closely tied into the Dunning Kruger effect, which I'm sure most people will be quite familiar with. Oh yeah, that, definitely. What? That... <laughs> <laughs> Have you not seen the Dunning Kruger curve? No. Is it something to do with Nickelback? That no. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think this is closely tied into the Dunning Kruger curve, where inexperienced new newer members of the staff will perhaps be overconfident in their decision-making capability. And as you say, Alex, that's because they don't know what what they don't know. And two more experienced members of staff who have made more mistakes and have learned from those mistakes and, and do know where their sphere of competence starts to end. That might seem cocky, but it's just, or just the nature of being a newer member of staff. So I think we definitely need to be aware of that and where I'm moving into a new area of practice in my trainee role. I'm very aware of some of the decisions I made when I was a newly qualified paramedic that were uninformed due to lack of experience and lack of safe mistakes. So I'm I'm just trying to be absolutely aware of that in the decisions I'm making currently. And that's why it's important to talk about mistakes and that's why I, we're sharing our mistakes here because it's only by reflecting on that practice and realizing what went wrong that you start to know where those blind spots are. Yeah, and just to jump in there, Josh, as well, before we uh, inadvertently upset anyone, obviously we're, we've said all along that you know everyone is, is subject to some degree of bias. So uh, you were saying there that staff who have more experience are perhaps more aware of their sphere of competency. However, to counter that, they are possibly more likely to experience other types of bias. So I just wanted to, to uh, clarify that we're not having a go at the students or the NQPs there. No, absolutely. And, and we're all still very much aware of this because it is so difficult. You don't know what you don't know. Um, but certainly in my own practice, uh, it, it, it happened a lot <laughs> when I was just qualified. <laughs> Let's summarise then. We've talked about a number of clinical fallacies all of which have the ability to influence our decisions, all of which I'm sure that we have displayed in our practice at some time or another. Ultimately, overcoming these is difficult, but the first step is knowing what they are, recognizing where they have the potential to rear their heads in our practice, and being conscious of them affecting our decisions. And I don't think we need to worry about which bias it is that we're being influenced by you know it's not necessary to remember all of the different names that we've talked about like like you said josh it's just about being aware that we are often under the influence of one bias or another remember that these biases can occur to anyone with any experience and as you've heard from the cases we've put forward we're all guilty of them as is every clinician so i think it's important that we learn when these are likely to influence our practice and we come up with cognitive strategies to defend against them where possible. When we do make these errors, we step away, we reflect on them and we learn from them. If you've got any feedback for us or to read the article, you can do that at generalbroadcast.org.uk or you can send us an email at generalbroadcastpodcast at outlook.com. But thanks very much for joining us and join us for the next episode. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening. Take care. And actually, that was a really useful tool that uh, he he would just shout through the uh, through the cabin hole.
I probably shouldn't say Cabin Hill. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. Um, One of the things that he would do that helped me overcome that was uh, he... Sorry, sorry. Oh, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna meet myself. I'm gonna meet myself. 